Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, coming to you today from Myungunbar country, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Supply Circles, the business improvement podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the three Ds. Oh, but that reminds me, let's talk about the three Ds. Over the Christmas break, we did a strategic review of the three Ds to ensure we're still current. The truth of the matter is that our third D, disruptions, will always be a part of business. We we have been managing disruptions for a long time. will always be a challenge. And we're not discounting the challenge. But we realise the challenge for business is bigger than just disruptions. We're facing the need to diversify as a result of disruptions and other factors. So the three Ds of business for this year and for the future are digitalization to keep up with your peers and your industries and to stay efficient and current, decarbonization to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050 and in some states 2045. And the third D now is diversification, where diversification reflects the need to build a broader business base. As the disruption of the pandemic showed, Australia is at its greatest economic risk when businesses are overly dependent on single relationships, whether it be for a product, a technology, a supply chain, or an export market. As Innes Willox, our CEO, said, in a year of uncertainty, building greater economic diversity will help businesses mitigate economic risks. So we say to achieve sustainable business, your business needs to consider diversity in its full sense. Digitalization, decarbonization, and diversification. And speaking of this year of uncertainty, today I want to pick up the message from uh, Dr. Jeff Wilson in our last episode, where he told us the next two years would see softening demand, increasing costs due to inflationary pressures, and the urgent need to improve processes and operations. It's going to be a difficult time ahead for all of us, and in a difficult time, the good businesses survive and thrive. But what makes a good business? One that can survive and thrive in difficult times. Well, obviously, there's many things that go into being sustainable and resilient. But my guest today says the overriding issue is brand. He says, business is brand, brand is business. <laughs> That's a nice saying. What does it mean? My guest today is David Schleffel, a branding and strategy expert, an old mate of mine, and the perfect person to ask about increasing competitiveness and demand in your business. I've watched David as his business improve their brands and their performance over many years, and it's such a great delight to have him on the show. So welcome, David. How are you? Very well, thank you, James. Wonderful to be here. Wonderful to be chewing the fat with you, and fantastic. We're actually going to be chewing the fat, and we'll remember it in the morning. So that's a pretty odd thing for you and me to uh, to uh, do. So uh, that'll be great. I've even got a record of it. I know. It seems like we should have some red wine here to make the conversation flow, but uh, we'll have to rely on, you know, brains and you know intelligence and our skills and etc which is always a scary thought absolutely <laughs> bit early even for me for red wine, I think. yeah we're recording this in the morning so red wine seem a long way mm. away uh you've said many you've said many times to me that you're a brand expert not a marketing expert per se what's the difference well that's a that's a very interesting question um so brand brand may be said to be part of marketing 
I actually think in this day and age, so in the 21st century, and particularly now we're in 2024, brand um, should be overtaking marketing. So let's quickly reflect. If we think of marketing, um, I mean, marketing has been around, shall we say, for a long time, but probably really been crystallized in the 1950s. Um, for those of your listeners who may have done a little bit of uh, marketing at uni, they'll remember Kotler, good old Kotler, uh, the book there, and I think it's up to about its 60th of edition <laughs> or something crazy like that. Um, and he was the one who certainly, um, uh, I don't know if it was, he coined it, uh, but certainly he popularized this whole concept of the three P, uh, sorry, the four P's. So product, price, placement, and promotion. Um, and back in the fifties, you know, that's what marketing people did. But if you think of it in most companies these days, and particularly in larger companies, but even in the smaller companies I've worked with, you've got product people. You've got people who are specifically looking, looking after product. Um, you've got price people. So the part of the finance department in larger companies, actual whole price teams. Um, obviously, placement, you know, most businesses, and particularly obviously with your listeners, they've got um, logistics or distribution teams. So that's all around looking at placement. Um, and the other side of that is, is where you're selling and that, that would go into sales. So the only thing left for the marketer these days is the promotions, the P of promotions. And what are you promoting? Well, you're promoting your brand. You're building and promoting a brand. So indeed, some corporates have actually taken marketing out of their lexicon altogether and they talk about brand. So they have chief brand offices, brand promotions, um, brand communication, etc. because brand really crystallizes what we're talking about. So that's my sort of uh, take on the difference between branding and marketing. I mean, we can go even further and say, well, look, uh, going back to the classic old days of marketing, brand is what you build and then marketing is what you do to help you build it and help you to sustain it. Um, but I prefer to see as a bit of a takeover, you know, rule the world branding, and that is that branding will, is actually marketing today. And we're all here to build brands and um, to sustain brands. Yeah, world domination uh, theory, according to David Slipple, yeah, it's always good. Absolutely, <laughs> brand is it. One of the one of the issues of Kotler and uh, uh, the four Ps was that it was always a bit sort of confusing, and and as as the more you thought about it, the more complex it got. Uh, you know, you need the four four Ps for each individual product. You needed the four Ps for uh, a division. Often, you needed the four Ps for the company. Whereas brand brings it all together, it gives it a sort of a central organising uh, model in which to, to base your, all those uh, P's. And of course, the, some listeners remember it went from four P's to six P's and then seven P's. And I think we got to nine before we just dropped yeah. them all together and said, let's put it into the brand organising. So James, I say to businesses, you're in business for one reason and one reason only, and that is to build a brand. Um, because in this day and age, that's where the value sits in the business. And indeed, I mean, if we had another three podcasts, I could actually take you through and prove that um, brand is actually your most valuable asset in the business. Um, and that, again, that is that is provable. Um, but if we take, say, the world's biggest brand, so there are a number of brand valuation um, uh, that floats around. I use the Interbrand one, which is the oldest one. So uh, at the end of last year, the Apple brand was uh, valued at $502 billion. Now, can I take a little aside here, James, if I may? How could I possibly um, control you not to anyway, David? Well, that's that's very true. Um, but I think it's interesting. In this day and age, we, we throw around terms, millions, billions, trillions. Um, I read uh, over Christmas that it's estimated that we'll have the world's first trillionaire within the next five to ten years. 
Um, and so we sort of lose the context of what a million, a billion and a trillion is. And I heard a wonderful interview with a scientist, can't remember who, a couple of years ago, and he gave, he gave us this sort of um, way of framing it. If we think of one second as the base unit, a million seconds is 11 days, a billion seconds is 31 years, and a trillion seconds is 31,000 years. Staggering numbers. So what we're talking about is Apple is equivalent to sort of 15,500 years in value. That, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But when we think about that, if we have a look at uh, Apple's balance sheet, um, because, and this is an argument, and uh, we discussed this the other day, there is a move now around the world. There's most, most accounting standards. You can only have um, uh, physical things on the balance sheets. There is a move to mortgages, um, the softer things like brand and intellectual property, et cetera. But if we have a look at the Apple um, balance sheet, we see that their biggest, um, their biggest asset um, is um, around about the single largest ac- asset is around about $130, $140 billion. Um, so that's their physical asset. Um, yet their brand is valued at $500 billion, so almost five times more than their physical asset. So this is just part of it, and it's a lot more detail than this, but I'm just uh, um, summarizing it, showing you that brand is their most important asset. But that trickles down right through um, to even smaller businesses, and that's what you're there. You're building a brand. And the more powerful the brand is, um, the more sticky, I suppose, your customers are, and the more powerful your brand are, the more value you have. The, the issue about that value, though, is that at some stage, and, and Apple might have, uh, you know, whatever number you said, uh, billions of dollars of, of brand value, uh, but if someone like Apple comes along and totally disrupts the market, their, their value drops to almost zero. It's like Nokia, you know, Nokia. Had, oh. Nokia was a monstrous business for old people. We all had Nokia phones. I had, uh, I was a Nokia Holden and uh, New South Wales <laughs> football team man, uh, you know, and Holden and Nokia uh, are no longer part of it. But that's the problem with yeah. putting the brand in the value in the balance sheet is that it, there's no sustainability to it. If you, if you like. Oh, but then you could argue I've got a piece of plant out there and, and that's, that's got a limited life as well. That's going to die and I'm going to have to replace it. So, and indeed, that's why I have depreciation. That's why I depreciate it. Yeah. Everything's yeah. under threat. I've got factory, but that could burn down. Um, I, I think, I think that's probably, um, not a reason not to have it on the balance sheet. Um, we, we won't get into the, uh, we won't get into the accounting arguments because the accounts will start. No, fighting. we won't get into accounting arguments because <laughs> we'll that's not my strong point. That's <laughs> I think that's I think that's really sort of demonstrating that you've got to keep on top of things. And the companies that you mentioned, um, Holden, I think, is a little bit of an exception because that was sort of a, a, a an overseas company deciding yeah, it, subset, it wasn't going to continue. Here. I, think, miners, yeah. I think there's still a fair bit of value in that Holden brand, um, but with businesses like Nokia, etc. They just got complacent, and that's another uh, thing I say to businesses. That's probably one of the greatest dangers is, is complacency, and you can't get complacent. And I don't think Apple is at this stage. But hey, all you need is a change of management. You know, one simple thing there, and that can change. Yeah, so yeah. vigilance across the business is is vital. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a good question for you about about brands. But before we get to that, I uh, it's we're recording this before the the Super Bowl, so we don't know how the Super Bowl. But one of the players in the Super Bowl is uh, a good, but but you know, standard football player um, who earns thirty million dollars a year uh, from uh, from uh, what we call gridiron um, from NFL, uh, and his girlfriend, a singer called Taylor Swift, 
is a billionaire. He's like a 24-year-old billionaire. We throw these numbers around quite staggeringly now, don't we? I can't imagine yeah. having a billionaire girlfriend. It must be a different life. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> back to back to more more normal numbers. And I'm sure your wife can't imagine you having a billionaire girlfriend either. She'd have something to say about it, but let's yeah, well, on. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> she might be happy about it. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we go off on tangents, David. I must say, does it, we have strange we conversations. So, look. And not a bottle inside. As only friends can do, let me ask you a blunt question. Why the hell would we be talking about brand on a podcast that's talking about resilient and sustainable supply chains? Well, because brand exists across the whole business. It's not just um, – and this is, a, I suppose, another reason why I have a problem with marketing because marketing tends to be this sort of dark art that people think and people in supply chains or you know, other parts of the business go, oh, that's a, that's a marketing thing. Everybody in the business owns the brand. And indeed, um, we have an overall brand in every business. But then there are also some sort of subsections or sub-branding. So some of your listeners will be very aware that um, big companies and uh, particularly so the big service companies, an important thing to them is employer brand because they want to attract and retain the very best talent. So they work hard on their employer brand. And likewise, I'd say in supply chain, branding is just important because you want to attract and maintain the best suppliers that you possibly can. Um, and those best suppliers will be wanting to work with great businesses that have great brands. Um, so that looks good for them as well. So brand brand is is the whole business, and everybody in a business uh, contributes to the brand. Because let's face it, if any of the business falls down, that impacts the brand. And uh, I mean, we won't take time now, but we all know thousands of stories where one part of a business is, has done something bad, and that's pulled the whole business down, and that impacts um, or reputation. And that's a whole other um, discussion around reputation and brand, other one and the same. But saying that they are certainly linked, um, that that affects brand value. So I think brand is something that everybody in the business should be uh, should be cognizant of um, and should be thinking about. So, so how do we use it to uh, improve our competitiveness, bringing this to sort of brand throughout the whole? the whole business uh, idea? Obviously, uh, no, in going back to sort of traditional old brand theory is the stronger your brand is, um, then potentially the better premium you can have. But also the fact is if you've got a good, strong brand, you are seen in whatever your market is to be a leader. Um, and therefore, when people are looking to make choices, um, they normally start with the leader or the, or, the, or the best brand in that particular segment, the one that's best known. Um, and and work from there. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an interesting example. It's in the mining industry. I was working with a company. Obviously, I can't name it, but it was a company that had actually had developed a particular mining process um, in Australia, um, and it, 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 it certainly um, revolutionised maybe too much, but it certainly had a major impact on mining. Um, but they were a typical Australian company. They were hopeless at branding. And indeed, James, you've heard me say this a number of times. I think that actually the biggest problem in Australia is uh, branding and businesses being able to tell their own story. Um, but they were the world leader. But I went down to the factory and started talking to some of the staff there, and they, they had no idea that they were world leaders and that they were the sort of the big brand. And indeed, the market didn't either. So what happened? An upstart American company, because as we know, the Americans are not backwards coming forwards, decided to start saying it was the uh, it was the market leader. Now, it didn't rip off any of the IP. It had developed a sort of a separate sort of thing, but it was saying, you know, we're the market leader, we're the market leader. And what did the big mining companies do? They went, oh, well, we, you know, we, we want to play with like, we'll go with the market leader, we will go with this American company. 
Um, and this Australian company really took a hit there for a while um, until they started to think, well, yes, we've got to start working with their brand. So everything underneath that was going perfectly fine, but the fact is they hadn't managed their brand and their brand perception in their marketplace, and you get an upstart who comes along, and um, um, that's you know that's very problematic. And hence why I say we, if we go back to brand being your most valuable asset, I bet, I bet virtually every one of your listeners, they'll have a production manager um, on uh, on staff. But I bet you only a few of them will have a brand manager. And as we saw in Apple's case, um, their brand is worth five times more than their, their largest asset. Um, so um, why wouldn't you have a brand manager to protect that brand to really be, be looking at that and to avoid problems, say, with the, the mining example I gave? Um, could it not be the same person? A brand manager and a production manager. Yeah. Um, um, well, Superman about. You're saying, um, you're saying they're distinctly different roles. They're, I think they are distinctly roles. I mean, there, there is a mindset that I think great production people have. Um, and often sometimes they come from a technical or engineering background or a trade background, and that makes them a great um, uh, production manager. Um, apologies to anyone who doesn't come from those, but you get my point about the mindset going there. And I think there's a separate mindset for branding and understanding that. I mean, I suppose it's like the old sort of, um, you know, it's a, it's a softer form, and the, and the production is the uh, is the more realistic, harder, or not realistic, but harder, harder form of the business. But we are saying that the production managers should be aware of the brand and the brand values and what the what the business is all about, because it's all based around the same organising principle. Absolutely, because every part of the business is a subset of the brand. Yeah. Um, well, tell, tell me about yourself. Uh, so your company is called Brandness. It says uh, better brands, better business. Tell me about your business. Uh, what problem are you solving and, and how did you get to this spot? So um, Brandness, um, as I said, um, you're in business for one reason, one reason only. Let's create a brand. So let's get business out of there. I am going to take over the world, James, get out of my way. And we're going to start talking about Brandness. I'm not in business. I'm in Brandness. Um, well, anyway, that's that was the sort of thinking behind it. Is really the brand is an, in, an integral part of business, um, and therefore, um, and my experience um, working with SMEs, um, like you many years ago, uh, I worked in a, a government SME or federal government SME support program, so I was exposed to hundreds, if not thousands, of SMEs around the country. I had a, I had a national role. Um, and, um, and, you know, as I said earlier, one of the, the, or the biggest problem I identified was their, their sort of lack of, lack of, um, work in the brand area. Um, and indeed, in some didn't really even understand what a brand was. Often I'd go into businesses and ask them about their brand and they'd show me their logo. And I'd say, no, tell me about your brand. And then, no, yeah, it's orange with white spots and look, we've got a little motif here, et cetera. And I'd say, that's your logo. Um, so they thought their logo was the brand. Their logo is a brand asset, um, which which is there to represent the brand. And indeed, I lectured um, at master's level in brand strategy for a dozen years and spent exactly zero seconds on graphic design. So it's a whole different ballgame. So brandness is all about um, strategy, but not just brand strategy. Um, the core part of that is aligning strategies so the three key areas is a business strategy. And I'm not talking about planning, getting into business planning. I'm talking actually about the high-level strategy. Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we headed? What does the journey look like? And given that, who will we work with? So a little bit of um, navel-gazing, if you like, but that's the sort of questions that really every business needs to be um, asking and answering. Um, then looking at customers um, and starting to look at um, more deeply in customers because let's face it, you know, without them, we don't have a business. 
Um, I find that a lot of businesses have a fairly scant um, understanding of customers, so it's probably based on transactional data um, and maybe not a lot um, more. Um, but customers are a lot more than ones and zeros. They're, they're living, breathing people. They're you, they're me, they're each one of your listeners. So trying to understand what makes them tick, not just when they interact with us, but more broadly can be very, very powerful because the better we can interact with them, then hopefully the more they'll want to interact with us and, and sales. So looking at customer strategy um, on identification. And then the third area is brand. And I like to call it the triumvirate. Um, using a good old, um, is that a Roman term or certainly back there, the, the triumvirates there? Some sort so of world domination term. Sort of powerful think, things. Yes, yes, again, getting back to that, yeah. So that's that's what we do with brands is really trying to align businesses with their strategy um, across their business strategy, customer strategy, and bring it to market their brand strategy. Um, when I was uh, at uni and bouncing around with Kotler and Cotter and all the other great brands, <laughs> Um, I was uh, I was forced to read a book called uh, Brand Extension is Death, and the theory was that if you have a strong brand, it's based around a product, uh, and if you tried to hang something else off that, uh, it would kill your brand. The uh, the one that was quoted extensively in the book was uh, Colgate. Everyone knows Colgate. There's no need to put the next word to it. Colgate toothpaste, but you don't need to put toothpaste because everyone knows Colgate. The theory was that if you try to sell, I don't know, aftershave or underarm deodorant or something as um, uh, as Colgate, you, you would dilute the brand and, and it was death. It was brand death. But over the years, that was back in the, I don't know when that was, probably the 70s and we're studying in the 90s. Uh, but over the years, that's, that's proven to not be exactly right, isn't it? You can use the brand for many things. Well, you can, um, and actually, uh, you asked me earlier uh, why I'm on a supply chain thing, and we should have been smarter about this, James, because uh, well, your new D, diversification, um, this comes down actually really to, to brand theory and what you're talking about. So that's the reason why I'm here, James, because, uh, <coughs> isn't it? Yes, because uh, you want yeah, to talk about Yeah, because we're wise. We're wise. We plan well. We're wise. We yes, plan well in advance. Yeah, we're supply chain planners, yes. Yes. So what, what does it mean? So diversification. So, okay, let's use your example of Colgate. So, yes, Colgate was originally um, seen as a toothpaste company, um, but it did actually diversify. But it diversified on a concept, not on a product, and that is oral health. So now it it offers a range of products around oral health. So you can get uh, floss, you can get toothbrushes, you can get all different sorts of things, a mouthwash, I think it's Colgate mouthwash, a range of toothpaste, et cetera, et cetera. So it's trying to own that oral health market. And it's doing it um, 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 very well. And this is the thing I would say to, uh, again, the people who are listening is that, yes, well, you've got into areas that possibly, you know, underarm and things, it's still in that area. But let's say if, if, if Colgate had gone into apple juice or road construction or airlines, you'd be scratching your head and going, well, why am I flying Colgate? Um, uh, I'm flying the tooth uh, toothpaste and uh, the toothpaste <laughs> holder, etc. Cetera, et cetera. It's, it's ridiculous. It, it, it'll just do your head in. Colgate Airlines. But the problem oh. is, is that would devalue the, the the oral health brand as well. Yeah. So, um, I think in this day and age, you probably don't stick with one product, but you try and um, you try and really have a concept or a category or whatever that you can be in and diversify across that. The the, the weirdest one though, the weirdest the weirdest all time one is Caterpillar, which make Heavy duty, you know, mining equipment, but you can buy caterpillar caterpillar boots and pants and possibly shirts. It's, yeah, it's all so industrial. And, and, we, and what they're saying, caterpillar says, you know how tough our machines are. 
together how tough our boots are. It's a nice kind of connection. That's exactly right. So that's that's the brand concept that they're really building is this whole sort of, you know, if you think about Caterpillar, they're big machines, they're tough machines, they do hard work. Well, to have a you know big machine, tough machine, hard work, you've got to be dressed the right way, don't you? So get into copy Caterpillar gear. But you've got to be very careful about this, James. There's a concept in branding called brand elasticity. And just like a rubber band, you can stretch it and can you stretch it so far and then it'll break. Now, that Caterpillar example is one I often use because the concept around that, as I said, big and large and, and um, tough, et cetera, et cetera. But if I went into perfume, you'd go, really, Caterpillar perfume? Do I really want to smell diesel and et cetera? Et cetera. I mean, you'd just go, that wouldn't work. And another example I use, um, let's think of two um, very well-known brands. The first one, Honda, okay? We're all very comfortable driving a Honda car and mowing our lawns with Honda and getting on the Honda jet ski and chopping down a tree with a with a Honda chainsaw and flying a Honda plane, et cetera, et cetera, because they're a motor company. They make motors, um, and that's what they're renowned for. Ford, however, is a motor car company. Okay, so we drive Ford cars, or um, and particularly in America, obviously it's the largest market. But can you imagine sort of, um, you know, particularly someone's in their big Ford pickup um, saying, yeah, I'm going to mow my lawn with a Ford lawnmower? It just it would do their heads in because they want the big F one fifty etc and all that experience there. They don't want to be putting around with their lawnmower. So for them to go into things that Honda did would be stretching the brand too far. Even though you've got two examples. I was just thinking about companies. whether or not I could possibly do a, a Harley Davidson lawnmower. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that would. Yeah, well, no, it wouldn't work, would it? No. It would. It just doesn't work. I mean, for everybody listening, you go, what Harley? No. Because Harley Davidson is that work. freedom, that the escape from reality that, you know, uh, yes. gets motor running. Yes. And, you know, and mowing the lawn is, <laughs> is real dose of reality, yeah. ain't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. So this is what I'm saying. This is, again, getting back to what I said earlier, brand, you know, understanding your strategy of your brand is absolutely vital. Um, and it's not your logo and merchandising, et cetera. It's, it's you're really getting to the nub of what is our brand, but the other important thing and we haven't touched upon here is it's one thing to talk about it around the boardroom table, but brands don't live in the boardroom. Brands are there to um, uh, to interact, to be part of the lives of everybody around the business. So obviously customers and consumers, uh, they're the first thing that we think of. But as I said earlier, it's just as important in the supply chain. Now we've, we want to have the best suppliers and we want to be able to keep them and we actually want to be able to work with them best and having a very strong brand is really important. So um, brands don't live in the boardroom. They live out there in the big wide world. So when you're looking at brand strategy, um, a lot of businesses and even consultants make the mistake of just sitting around a boardroom table and you know singing Kumbaya, et cetera, et cetera, and coming up with strategy and then taking it to market. Um, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. I, I worked with a company a little while ago and they got a brand person in and um, they had a, a, a product extension um, and they did all this sort of stuff and um, it went to market. Uh, the brand person won all of these awards. It was great stuff, fantastic. Didn't sell one, not a one um, because in the end it ended up being a solution looking for a problem. So it was an award-winning marketing campaign and, and brand and what sort of stuff, but actually they hadn't actually connected. Now, the product itself was a great product, but the way they had positioned it was wrong. Um, and if they'd actually gone to the marketplace and started talking to customers, to people and saying, okay, what, what are you doing at the, at the moment in this particular space? How are you using it? Uh, what are your pains? What do you like? You know, where, where could it be better, et cetera, and really starting to understand it. 
um, and then coming back and saying, right, well, this is what we've got here, the pain, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, where we're trying to take this is wrong. We need to be going over here. And indeed, at great expense of management, um, they had to take it off the product, leave it for 12 months, and then bring it back on um, in, in a new way. And um, it was a successful it was a successful brand. So I do really um, uh, uh, sort of strongly um, say to clients, you, you've got to get out there and talk to your customers. It's a vital thing across your whole business, actually. Um, but certainly when you're looking at uh, developing um, or for most of your businesses, of course, maybe refreshing the brand um, or even understanding the brand. I've done a lot of work with businesses that have a brand, but they actually have no idea what it's all about um, because they've gone to a, um, a graphic designer who's done them in last logo and it's sort of, you know, it, it's built up over years, but they really don't understand what's behind the brand. Um, and that's probably actually the mainstay of a lot of my businesses is existing brands, not new brands, existing brands trying to understand their brand and how their brand can be better and how can better rep- represent their business and be a strong contributor to their business. Yeah, we've had uh, business owners on this uh, podcast who uh, run across this idea of brand and uh, that includes their supply chain. So uh, um, yeah, companies have said, we will, we will maintain our suppliers and we will build long-term relationships with them uh, because we're a family business, you know, we, we build businesses based on family values and, and, you know, you're a family, we're a family, we'll connect. As long as you can get that matching the other parts of your brand, that's a really strong way to run your business. Yeah, um, I do encourage everybody. Um, and James, I want to say I've, I've listened to quite a few of them now, and, and it, they, this is a great series of podcasts. So I hope everybody out there recommends them to uh, their colleagues and other people because there's so much really great stuff and great learnings um, on these. Um, one of them, and obviously because it breaks my heart, and also because I happen to have worked with a particular person, was Adam Blake, uh, the co-CEO of Blunston. Um, and I think anyone who's interested in branding, that's a must-listen to podcast, and you may have listened to it and um, and um, do listen to it again um, because um, I talk strategically and, and sometimes theoretically. He's actually done it. Um, he went into Blundstone, and I think one of the things that really resonated with me, he talked about the Blundstone was a product-based company and had been for over 100 years. The big thing he had to do was move it from a product-based company into a brand because as a product-based company, really, often if you really just focus on the product, you've got one point of maneuverability, and that's price. Um, and like happened in the boot market, if you've got other um, competitors coming in, all you can do is compete on price. Whereas if you have a strong brand, there's a whole lot of other things, you've got a whole lot of other levers, and indeed that's what Adam did. Now, Blundstone was a great brand, but as a business, the culture was concentrated on the product. He now has taken that brand, really, really um, codified it, if you like. Everyone just understands the, brand, the, the Blundstone brand. Um, and um, and taking it to the world. Um, and I can't remember the exact figure, but I, I think it's like in some countries, you know, one in three people now, so smaller countries, I think Israel maybe one, um, own a pair of Blundstone boots um, because it's seen um, as a, a particular style of fashion item. It's a little bit like the Caterpillar. It's tough, it's you know, hard wearing, but it's fashionable as well. So uh, do have a listen to that if you if you want to um, hear how some of this theory is actually being implemented, and it's 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 a great case study, and particularly again with an existing brand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that whole idea of uh, if your business is currently product based, uh, it's not not impossible to make it into a brand. Uh, Adam and many others have have done that, and includes your supply chain, and, and includes your channels to market, and includes what happened in your own factories or 
or operations. We should take a break. When we come back, let's talk some more about how we uh, move from the boardroom into the into to, you know day-to-day operations in managing and building brands. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. I'm talking with uh, David Schliffel, my old mate and brand expert. And uh, David, before the break, we're talking about how we move from the boardroom uh, to bringing the brand alive in the whole business. Let's talk about that a bit more. Before we do, is this just for products or uh, can brands be just as strong in the service industry? It's a Dorothy Dixer, but come on, take it up and hit it back to me. Well, it is a Dorothy Dixer. So um, interestingly, and probably when you were doing marketing um, studies, James, you would have had um, uh, subjects um, around service marketing. Um, and uh, it was considered to be this sort of outlier out there. I'll have you know that I lectured in that. I, I, did I, you? Yes, I, I did. did not know you lectured yeah. in service marketing. Good. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you probably told me it one night, but as I said, it was a cheer the fact we forgot the next morning. But anyway. And Charles Darwin, um, University, Charles Darwin University in Tourism. Excellent. Well, I, I hate to say uh, I'm going to do you out of a job, and, um, but I'm going to do you out of a job because for me, a great brand is a great brand. It doesn't matter what the product or service is. We build great brands. Um, and the funny thing I find, um, I've worked a lot across, uh, say, manufacturing industries, uh, food, etc., and service industries. And um, I often sort of have a little in- internal chuckle is so many of the manufacturers um, I work with are trying to servitize their products. And so many of the service companies I'm try- I work with are trying to productize their services. Um, so the grass is always greener. But to me, um, and particularly again, look, possibly back when you were studying and lecturing, there were differences um, between the two of them and the approach. I think they have converged um, very much so. I, I think uh, the approach to brand, now potentially to implementation, which we're not talking about here, it may be slightly different, although even then I don't, I don't think it is with the emergence of social media um, as such a powerful force and other digital um, platforms. Um, I, I think that has uh, sort of created a level playing field. But to me, uh, the approach to brand for uh, services and for um, uh, products are, are one and the same. So is Apple a product company or a service company? Um, is Amazon, uh, you know, is that a product company or a service company? Yeah, I, I, think, there's the, I think there's really the point, isn't it? We've, we've moved past product and now service um, is is just yeah. as much a part of the of the whole business interaction. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, for those of, uh, of your audience who are old enough, there was a saying uh, back in the day, you, you, you never get fired for buying IBM. Um, now, again, I mean, IBM was obviously a product, but there was a heck of a lot of services with IBM as well. Um, and if you think about, you know, some of the great service brands, although unfortunately they have been quite diluted, so there's an example of uh, things, but, you know, you, you, the consulting brands. Um, you know, you talk about the big four, but of course, as a lot of people know, there is a, a level above the big four, so your McKinsey's and, and Bain's and those things, um, and they purely live off their brand, um, but to a very select market. So, you know, if you go into the street and say, talk about McKinsey's, most people have never heard of it. But for their select market, everybody knows McKinsey's and everybody, well, at least trusts McKinsey's. They may or may not use them. So, um, and, and that's all built on brand. 
and obviously capability, but um, particularly brand. Yeah, it brings us to that uh, great point of the difference between B2B and B2C, which I'm sure everyone knows, but we're talking about business to business uh, like McKinsey's uh, and business to consumers like the four banks. So again, sort of um, traditionally, they were considered to be separate approaches. Um, but again, I think that has all converged as well. And the example I give, in particularly say in the supply chain area, um, if you think you know, you're a you're a senior manager or anybody working a business, and um, depending on where you live, obviously this doesn't happen in rural areas, but in central cities, um, in the bigger cities, now I can ring Amazon or, or place an order at Amazon at nine o'clock, and it's sitting on my doorstep at twelve o'clock. Um, uh, and yet I ring up a major supplier in the next suburb and they say, yeah, that'll be with you in three weeks. And you go, well, hang on, how is it that Amazon can get it to me here in a couple of hours? You know, you're five kilometres away and it's going to be three weeks. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. So our, our expectations now as B2B customers are very much influenced by our B2C experiences. So, um, again, I think it's just become one big melting pot. It's, it's, and in the end, a B2B, well, it's still a customer, isn't it? Um, it, you may be in business, but you are still a customer. So I think that's really important. I, I think sometimes I think that um, differentiation is used for expediency rather than actually good business. Um, we should be treating all our customers, whether they're consumers um, in the retail space or whether they're actually um, you know, other businesses, we should be treating them the same. And we should certainly be making sure our brand is as resilient um, with them as it is um, in, uh, in consumer branding. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great point you make. Uh, for these uh, podcasts, I use a Rode microphone, R-O-D-E, Rode microphone. Uh, and uh, a little while ago when I was putting the, the microphone together, I snapped off a key part, and so I couldn't connect the microphone to its stand. Uh, so I got on to the website and said, I've broken this, I need a new one, uh, and uh, it came from Melbourne. But the whole process was spectacular. It was like ordering a pizza. Uh, it told me how long it was going to be, when it would be here. They didn't charge me for it, by the way, because there's a, apparently a lifetime guarantee for those sort of things when I bought the uh, bought the microphone, which is expensive. Um, my point was, my point is, David, that uh, they built a business loyalty from me by having uh, an operation that matched their brand. Uh, their brand, their, their brand is high quality. You know, that's quite clearly that you buy this stuff because it's the best on the market. But then when I dealt with them, they were the best in the market. Yeah, the road story is actually fascinating. Um, if you get it, ever get an opportunity to um, uh, to hear the founder speak, and I'm sorry, I've, I've very rudely forgotten his name, um, uh, it is just a brilliant story. Um, and may I say, James, it's a great example. That is purely a brand. Road is a brand. Um, and, it, and he's quite unashamed about talking about that. He wanted to build a great brand. Yes, he wanted to have great products as well, and part of the brand thing was um, great products at an affordable price. Um, and that's how we came into the marketplace is um, um, really understanding, um, first of all, what the industry, but then general people who are looking in the audio side of things. You know, again, what I was talking about earlier is really getting to know your customer, understanding your customer's pains and gains and all those sorts of things. Um, and then he came back and actually uh, uh, pulled together a product offering and then above that and around that and encasing that a great brand and taking that to the marketplace. Um 
So, and, and this gets to uh, an earlier question um, or potentially one in your notes. So I may be answering a question you haven't asked yet you know, about this whole thing, brand and product is that they're, they're not one and the same, but they're absolutely intertwined. So using that example, if, if Road had just gone out with, um, you know, a quality affordable thing with nothing else, I think they would have struggled. Or if it's just gone out with a brand and, and put all their investment there, but didn't have the products to back it up, they would have struggled. So they are very much intertwined and work um, together. And all the components do as well. So as you said, supply chain. Now, you've just said on, no, I'm going to say national radio, if you like, national podcast. Well, thank you very much. You know, and look, it, I think we should go with global podcast. I, I think global. 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 This actually yeah. is global, yeah. isn't it? It is. Hello, actually, hello, just to, hello to Francine South, uh, uh, South Africa, who is actually going to listen to this uh, there. We'll go global. Hello, Francine. Uh, lovely to, uh, uh, to digitally meet you. But you've just promoted the road brand. You've just told an experience. Now, if there are people out there who are thinking about buying some audio equipment, go, oh, I heard this guy James, and he said it was a really good experience. Yeah, I might have a look. Yeah, I might. So what a great, you know, you've become almost a brand ambassador, and that's really what we're all looking for um, in the end is, is happy customers. And as you said, part of that is the fulfillment. Um, they, they set an expectation with you. They delivered on that expectation, um, and they got it to you in a, in a quick way so you could continue doing your work. So, and again, supply chain underlies all of that, doesn't it? I think that's, that's the point of, the, of our conversation, that you need to, to create the brand and understand what the brand is and what its values and what you're, what you're trying to do by solving a market problem. But then make sure it happens all the way through your supply chain, including with your suppliers and your transport people, et cetera, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's the point. Isn't it? Everything that has to do with your business um, has to do with the, the brand. Yeah, and particularly um, where it's becoming more and more important is, is businesses, you know, all businesses, um, my experience is increasingly looking to um, greater online presence, um, um, whether it's e-business or, or moving to the old e-commerce side of things. Um, and in, the, in that online space, the real differentiator, the real thing that's the strongest is a brand. You've got to have a great brand there. Um, but the whole side behind delivering on that brand, so much of that comes back to, um, uh, well, in the digital space, it's called fulfillment, but in, in your terms, that, that whole supply chain uh, side of things. And um, you can destroy a brand by not meeting expectations um, from people um, through delivery. Um, and there are any number of case studies um, of that around the world where uh, you know, great brands have been hampered and even destroyed because they just couldn't um, meet supply expectations. I mean, they had the stock. They just couldn't get it there in, in the expected time. How do you advise companies? What do you advise companies to do when they're thinking about their brand? Do they look at their operations? Do they look at their marketing? Uh, do they just Is it just a straight strategy assessment? How do you go about getting this uh, brand wholeness into your business get it out of the boardroom and into the in, into the business i know that's a big question but just you know just just a couple of lay down a few markets that people can take away from this uh, podcast and say i need to think about that so um we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach so it just depends on the business and the brand and and the market etc but j- just very roughly obviously you want to speak to people in the in the business so not just management or owners but also um staff um and staff on the floor as well because they they so often have great perspectives um, on things but as i said one of the earlier key things is is and this i, I presume you're talking about an established brand obviously it's different if we're creating a new brand but if you're talking about an established brand as i said brands live out there in the big wide world they yes, don't- um, okay well well, well- Look, the, the, the majority of, uh, of 
the, the business operators that listen to this uh, this podcast are in a medium-sized business, small to medium-sized business. Maybe it's you know twenty to fifty mil turnover. They are manager or the owner of the business, um, and they have, as you said, production manager, sales manager, account manager, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They have long-term staff and they have deep supply chains, uh, some local, some international, and they have distribution channels. A typical kind of you know medium-sized business. How do they go about making sure that they are maximising their opportunities in the difficult trading time ahead by fixing their brand? So uh, to cut a long story short, as I said, um, obviously talk internally, but the key part of this is because brands live out there in the big wide world, you've got to understand where your brand currently is. Um, So with large brand agencies, they'll do a thing called a brand audit. Um, that's where they actually do a full audit of the brand. Now, that is a very good piece of work if it's done properly, but often it's a big piece of work and it can be a very expensive piece of work. Um, so uh, at Brandness, we've developed a, uh, a brand audit light, if you like. So it allows people to get um, um, some of the key sort of best parts of the brand audit by talking to key people out there in the big wide world. Now, customers is obviously one. But when you've got an important supply chain, talk to your suppliers. Yeah, and I really yeah. encourage business, yeah. talk to your suppliers because they're, they're often there because you've got to you know, something about your brand, your staff. And they can see you. They can see from outside, isn't it? It's like asking your mate what you what what about yourself because they know you, but they they can give you an honest appraisal. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But obviously that gets down. Sometimes I might, you know, I might ask you a question, James, about something you're going, oh, you know, I'd like to say the truth. You think to yourself, I'd like to say the truth, but I don't want to hurt his feelings, so I'd better <laughs> well, say something else. Is that sure? So <laughs> how you frame the questions is very important and, and, and how you pick it. So we talk about all of that in doing it. Um, so obviously businesses can do it by themselves, but although I do encourage them to work with, you know, um, facilitators and people because you can do some damage. So, um, the, the methodology I have developed, actually, I get the business themselves to talk to people, not, not getting third parties, not getting juniors to do it. Um, I expect everyone ar- around the table in the, in the workshops, the owners, et cetera, to actually go and talk to people. Cause I can't tell you how many times, cause what happens when I say you have to do that? I get a, oh, really? God, do we have to do it? Why did we sign up to this? Oh my God. And then the first, the first yeah. workshop back after they've done it, I hear, oh, why didn't we do this years yeah. ago? That yeah. was the best yeah. thing. We've learned so much. You know, we've actually talked to our customers. And this gets back to what I was talking about earlier. Often you'll talk to your customers, but you're talking about a specific um, product or process problem or something. You, you, you're talking about um, that. Customers loved actually to talk, you know, a little bit like you and me, James, to shoot the fat a little bit about the business. Say, tell what do you think of the brand? And what do you think? Where, where are we good? Where aren't we so good? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I've had case after case after case where uh, businesses have come back after moaning about having to do this and just saying, we're actually going to do this regularly now. And in fact, the customers we talk to ask to do it regularly. They actually want to not just, you know, tick a box or do an online survey, um, but they actually want us to actually have a deep, uh, a deep conversation with them about a whole lot of aspects, brand being one of them, but other things as well. Because um, they're invested in our business just as much as, or not just as much, but they're invested in our business like we are. Um, and they want to make sure we're the best business we can be so they can be the best business they can be in a B2B sense or they can be the best person they can be in a, in a consumer sense. Yeah, I did a uh, service order, audit. I did a service audit of a, uh, a very large well-known manufacturer in Australia, uh, and I, uh, I talked to their, uh, their suppliers, many of whom were small businesses, and some were big businesses, uh, and, the, and the, the, the main business was... Um, 
totally committed to quality. I think, you know, it's almost, it's almost their tag, you know, totally committed to quality. And when you spoke to the, certain, to the suppliers, they said, no, nah, that was just all bull. Uh, they're, they're, they're interested in cost. Um, it's, there's, there's no matchup between what they say and what they do. And as a result, there was no great deep affinity between the suppliers and the business. When we fixed that message, when we got that working right, when the processes actually matched their rhetoric, um, it worked a lot better. I mean, they said, you can't be a supplier yeah. of ours unless you're committed to quality. But then when they got down to working, the, the main business wasn't. And the business, you know, the CEO was surprised when we went back to him and said, um, yeah, it's not happening. It's what, they, what, what you say and what you do is different. And he was horrified. Um, it was a he at the time. It's a she now. Um, but... Yeah, they, they... James, can I just make, can I just make a point on that? So they went and actually talked physically to those people. Can I just make, say a controversial thing? Because um, as you know, I hate being controversial. Go ahead, go on. Um, but when you're looking at interacting with customers, suppliers you know, across the thing, uh, the the often the default is to do a survey or to do a focus group. And I'm going to say right here, focus groups and surveys are a waste of time and a waste of money. Don't do them. In this, in this, um, in this particular scenario where you're trying to get some honesty out in of In any scenario, oh, actually. Oh, okay. Well, not, well, not in any scenario. They, they do have their place. Focus groups maybe have their place to confirm something that you have learned along the way when you've got made other approaches. I think surveys were also surveyed out. I mean, these days you, you, you put your big toe inside a shop and you get a survey of how the experience was. Um and people just fill them out as it's just if they fill them out at all. Mm. I mean, I have I have a ban across our family on surveys because I think there's uh, potentially some um, uh, some security problems across them. Um, and and let's think about a focus group. You get a group of people who often you're paying. You get them there at five o'clock. You give them a glass of wine, and you, you're taking them right out of the context that they're using your products. You put them in the boardroom. Um, you've got to speak to people when they're around using your products or services, or or at least you know, uh, 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 in able to engage with it. Um, so I, I think it's so so important that you use other uh, methods like deep interviews. Um, and then you know, I have clients say, "Oh, we're going to have to do hundreds of those," and I say, "No, actually." What tends to happen is after you've done well, three, but more likely five, five. interviews, mm-hmm. you are going to see trends. You're actually going to see major trends there. Um, I get them uh, to do between nine and 18 interviews, um, and, and there's a reason for that numbers that I won't go into. But I remember I had one food client who absolutely hit the roof when I said that to them. They said, how can you get anything in nine interviews? That's absolutely ridiculous. This is crazy. This is crazy. And people settled him down. He said, all right, well, we're bored into this. I'll go off and do the nine interviews. About a week later, he rang me up and he said, I've done three interviews and I'm hearing the same thing over and over again. Do I have to do it all? And I went, ah. well, you were the one who was almost cancelled this whole thing because he said, no, he said, no, I get it now because, and they did have a very good brand and, and the story was coming across very well. So I'm just saying is that there are far better ways. You can do market uh, uh, questioning. You, you can do your ch- channel questioning, but also your suppliers should be questioned as well and your staff. You can find out from everyone how it's actually working compared to what you think and what the brand values should be. Yeah. Um, yep. Look, and another great source of information, um, and unfortunately SMEs struggle this a little bit, but it's actually data. Um, and I think there's a lot of work that SMEs can do in actually looking at their data, their data sources, how they use their data. Because what I often say is if you've got good data, that builds the skeleton, if you like. And then when you go out and talk to people, that puts the flesh and the, and the facial expressions and everything else around that. 
But um, often um, without that data, sometimes you can have a bit of a floppy sort of uh, person you're building. It's a silly analogy, but you get the point. Um, so data can be a really great so source. You, you, know, you know the analogy actually is that you use your data to build the, build the body, uh, you ask the questioning to get the facial expressions and the emotions, yeah. and then you give it to creative so they can put the pretty dress on and the makeup and do the hair and uh, give you a nice advertising campaign. <laughs> they're just, they're just the, well, the, the nice, you know, they, they do the finished product. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But I do encourage, as I said, your listeners to look at their data sources and what they're doing with their data. And um, uh, again, it's the thing I found working with SMEs is that um, data is, well, often it's not, it's, it's not that it's not understood. It's just going to be a time consuming thing. And they may not have data specialists in the business and maybe not business analysts, et cetera. Um, but I think moving into the future, um, well, it's certainly an investment that's well worth considering. The, uh, the first D is digitalization. And we would encourage everyone to start thinking about their digital strategy and how they're going to use data to to manage their business. If we learned anything out of the COVID area, it was the ability to pivot and to adjust uh, and to react uh, all came down to good data in the business. It's been a great conversation. Absolutely. Hey, we've covered two of the Ds, digitization (laughs) and diversification. They're all all related. Uh, You can't do decarbonisation without a digital strategy because you need need data on that as well. by the way, regarding surveys, the, the craziest survey ever was that one with the five faces outside public toilets where they said, was your experience happy or, or sad? Remember they were everywhere for a little while? And I always thought yeah. it's not hard to figure out what a good toilet is. You know, you don't need a survey for this. You know, it's, you just need to do it right. So something should be surveyed, but as you say, they're ubiquitous. Be smarter about it, yeah. and it can affect your brand if you keep asking dumb, dumb surveys. It, people will get annoyed with it. Been a great chat. How do people find you, and who should find you? Um, well, who should find me? Well, um, apart from uh, anyone that SMAs. wants, anyone, apart from anyone that wants a good, good uh, conversation and a, a couple of glasses of wine. Good conversation, yes, um, absolutely. Um, so you said uh, earlier your um, uh, your audience profile. That's that's my sweet spot. Um, so working to those sort of um, well, more smaller moving to medium enterprise, I suppose, and definitions of travel, but that sort of you know, uh, 20 to 40 million, um, 5 to 20 million, they're the sort of the, the two sort of great. But I've worked with plenty of um, uh, 50 million plus businesses as well. Um, uh, so how do you find me? So my website's brandness.com.au. Um, and I presume your listener base is not full of scammers and spammers, so uh, they can contact me at David S at brandness.com.au. We'll put that in the uh, the show notes anyway. Um, it's uh, it's been great to have you on and have a, have a wide ranging chat. People will be scratching their heads saying, "What was all that about?" <laughs> <It was, laughs> they always talk like that, and the answer is yes, we do. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm sure you remember this, but you and I once had a talk about brand and. Uh, and values, etc. Whilst walking through a canyon just outside Alice Springs one morning, when we ran away, I think from a conference that we were supposed to be attending. I remember it very fondly, James. Very fondly indeed. Um, in fact, uh, I took my family back there because I had such a, a nice, uh, nice memory of that canyon. So it was lovely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I've really appreciated. Um, uh, our chat and our chew the fat, and uh, I hope the audience has uh, maybe gleaned one or two things of, of interest from it. All the best for the future, and and we'll catch up soon. That's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening, and thanks for your feedback. If you have any feedback on today's interview with David or ideas for the show, or just want to give me some feedback, 
hit me up at james.scotland.aigroup.com.au. That's one T, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you and thank you for everyone who does. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more business improvement insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.